what are these alternative critical ways of understanding the world that challenge that hegemonic modernist project? What would it look like if they were the basis for infrastructural design? From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Abby Spinnick, environmental historian and planning scholar, whose work focuses on energy histories and the politics of infrastructure. Abby, welcome. Thank you, Charles. It's delightful to be here. Thanks so much for doing this. I know that your research uh, and new book project focus in part on the emergence uh, over um, the first half of the 20th century of these rural uh, community-based uh, electric cooperatives. Um, for our audience, just set, set the stage for the emergence of those cooperatives in the 1930s, uh, obviously in the in the wake of the economic crisis of the late 20s and early 1930s, in the context of um, massive federal programs. How did the idea of a community-based electric cooperative emerge as the solution to rural electrification in the South and Midwest? Well, first, let me say that these co these co-ops still exist. Um, there are about 900 of them across the U.S., and they continue to provide power for about 42 million Americans across 48 states. So I'm going to go back to the New Deal, but it's important to realize that they're not a relic of mid-20th century history. They are still providing power every day. Um, what's important about this is that a lot of people, even members of these cooperatives, don't know that they exist. Um, and so they're sort of... <laughs> Depending on depending on who you ask, they might be a, uh, a sort of latent landscape of economic democracy hidden in plain sight in the American landscape. But they weren't initially designed to be this this alternative to capitalism or this this challenge um, to private industry the way that we might talk about cooperatives today. What encouraged this federal program, the Rural Electrification Administration, to form and to, um, to focus on cooperatives in the 1930s was really that they served as a compromise between fierce debates over whether power should be public or private. Um, you know, the way that we might talk about healthcare today and, um, and lambast the um, inefficiencies and exploitativeness of private healthcare companies um, and talk about how a public option might be a more just outcome. People talked about power in the, in the 1920s and 30s that way. Um, and so there, there was a big push for a public option for electricity, especially because in rural America, um, for a lot of interesting economic reasons I can go into in detail if, you, if you're interested, um, in rural America, they were sort of decades behind um, in power infrastructure. The American power industry developed largely through private utilities, uh, privately owned, investor-owned utilities. And so they were interested in how electricity makes a profit and what densities um, can contribute to sustainable growth. Um, rural America didn't look good to those utilities. They, you know, It was to extend lines um, at the low density of, of agrarian America, it would be thousands of dollars just to build out to one farm. Um, and so there were content there were all of these debates um, for decades between 
or I, I should say debates, more like um, failed negotiations between rural communities and private utilities um, over how rural America could get electricity. And obviously the solution to that is public power, right? When there's market failure, the government should step in if some for something like electricity, which was quickly becoming seen as a necessary public good um, in the early 20th century. But um, the way that politics works in America, that was that was very contentious. And so what public power proponents ended up seizing upon in the 1930s when there was all of this reconstruction funding through um, through New Deal programs, through the Roosevelt administration, was to create a public lending program that offered financing for communities to, to bring electricity to themselves. Um, and so they really arose over the failure of this new program, the Rural Electrification Administration, to on the one hand, get the interest of private utilities um, to take advantage of government loans, to build out their private companies to rural Americans. And on the other hand, um, a very vibrant community of public power enthusiasts um, who couldn't get past aspersions that public power was socialist, that it was a waste of taxpayer dollars. Um, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these um, aspersions were supported um, politically and financially by the private power industry, as you might expect. As you say, you know, the history of electrification, you know, emerges um, in the cities. Uh, it begins with, you know, private industry, uh, for-profit entities uh, in a competitive fashion. And then those uh, tend to then be collectivized in, in, into ultimately public utilities, most often following various economic crises. In this sense, you know, the, the history of electrification in the U.S. cities tends a little bit to follow the history of the um, transit systems and railroads, which begin as competitive for-profit, you know, industry competing with itself and then become collectivized in the wake of various kind of economic crises. Um, the, the story that you're telling, Abby, about um, the inability of the market to serve or to build infrastructure in certain parts of the country uh, rehearses a little bit what we've seen recently with access to the internet or with access to cable TV. There's a, a long set of you know, these infrastructures that obviously the market simply um, doesn't find itself uh, expressed uh, evenly, let's say, uh, across the differentially developed uh, United States. Um, I'm interested in particular in the idea of the cooperative as a kind of alternative. So for, first of all, just for the record, we're meant to think of these cooperatives as community-based, uh, locally governed in a way, um, but should we think of them strictly as not-for-profit? Yes, um, they technically can make a profit, but they're required to return that profit to members as capital credits. They have variously over the decades, and in some cases, co-ops have been sued for not doing so. Um, and then there's a question of, you know, if they're following best business practices of, of a for-profit industry, which they largely have over the last couple of decades, you know, in, in a growth-oriented model, what, what counts as a profit? But to some extent, yes. And I mean, I think I would say that everything that you just defined them as is should be said with a caveat. So they, they are not-for-profit, they're community-owned, and they're democratically managed I, maybe the only thing you can say is that they're community owned. Uh, actually, no, actually, I'm going to take that back because a lot of my book is about um, how how financing intersects with the cooperative business model and erodes possibilities for local democracy in interesting ways. So, but, but I think the, 
I think the tension at the heart of the electric co-op network in the U.S. is what does what does democratic management mean? And unfortunately, in part because of the the REA's practices and their and their desire to not look like they were providing a public option that that it wasn't a waste of that it was a good investment of taxpayer dollars. The REA had a really heavy hand in management at the beginning, and you can see this in in the archival records. They, you know, they talk about does community ownership mean democratic management? And there's a lot of hemming and hawing about well, you know, n- only if the community can get up to speed on best management practices, and well, maybe we should provide um, educational services to to help them manage their cooperative because they don't really know what the the sophisticated business of electricity provision is and and so i see this as a missed opportunity because there's this moment when you know you're providing all of these resources around energy infrastructure in this supposedly democratic format it could have provided these communities a vibrant forum to debate what they saw as their own self-determination like what their what future of development they wanted and instead they're they're given these loans to create these very tightly prescribed cooperatives that have to act according to the the model that this federal program the REA thinks electric cooperatives should behave like i can say from my own personal experience my mom retired uh, in florida to a a little town where her um, electrical grid was serviced by a cooperative of this type and she owned shares and was you know receiving some form of dividend in addition to her bill um, on a monthly or annual basis uh, she was well served by electricity never really had any particular issues but um, my experience was that it didn't strike me as a particularly democratic or transparent operation whether it was about millage rates or decisions about growth or reduction of the grid itself part of what i hear you saying is the extent to which these cooperatives have basically been um, either obliged to or even unconsciously absorb the kind of financial logic of, of market-based um, mar- market-based commerce. It happened in stages. You know, I, I part of what I'm trying to do in this work is, is look at how federal loans um, enacted a certain kind of discipline and then how that changed again in the 1970s as the um, the congressionally allocated budget for this program wasn't keeping up with co-op growth. Um, and so they were encouraged by a number of external players to, um, to, to seek out private financing through private capital markets. And so there are these stages where, you know, at first I see them very much as part of a project of national economic growth um, in, in the New Deal. And then they become part of this financialized process towards, I don't know, we might call the era of, of um, neoliberalism, um, where they're they're sort of detached from the federal government and develop a relationship with private lenders, even though they're still nominally nonprofit, nominally community or community owned, nominally democratically managed, right? They're all of these things, but they're getting their they're getting their financing through um, essentially, actually through um, an organization that they created to package their loans as mortgage-backed securities in the 1970s. So um, you begin with this notion of the um, New Deal era, Roosevelt and Roosevelt administration and kind of big project, uh, in part focusing on 
rural electrification in terms of economic development, uh, in terms of you know of landscape and planning reforms, uh, agricultural enhancements, a whole broad spectrum of things that include maybe even public health improvements, among other things. Um, so as you describe in your work, we see a, a kind of, is it fair to see a kind of withering of that broader mandate over the decades? What, what you're describing for me suggests that by the time we um, we get to the 1970s, uh, these entities are still, um, you know, you say there are now 900 of them, hundreds and hundreds of them across the United States. They're still delivering power to millions and millions of people. They're still essential, effectively, to the energy infrastructure of the country. And at the same moment, they seem to have withdrawn from their central role in growth or the development of economic and public health uh, outcomes. Is that, is that a fair reading? It's complicated. And I would also add to your description of the New Deal that this was this was a time of environmental crisis. And I think that's one of the reasons why the New Deal is so resonant for us today. Um, in addition to the depression, a lot of these rural communities were also dealing with the Dust Bowl. And there was a lot of talk at the time about how these massive droughts and dust storms, they, they were cyclical and natural, but they were exacerbated by commercial agriculture that it was a failure of capitalism, right? A failure of, of the, the sort of push to um, make farms more productive. One of the things that rural electrification was supposed to solve in the 1930s was this problem of um, environmental decline and agricultural decline. So when you talk about health, um, it's health on several levels, it's health of the land and, you know, and the REA, um, this program of electric cooperatives was implemented alongside programs of federal land management, of, of, of um, scientific land management that involved retiring certain parts of farmland from, from agriculture. There, you know, there was the um, there were all of these resettlement programs. But at the same time, the the conceit of rural electrification was that it was supposed to again make farming more efficient. So it was it was supposed to protect farmland through things like ir irrigation and things like that but um at the same time at the same time it was it, it was fundamentally a program of um of growing the production capacity of rural america um to create more agricultural commodities faster and with fewer workers because everything could be mechanized through electrified farming so it has this growth imperative built in that is at the same time it's it's trying to like solve this this contradiction of capitalism right it's trying to protect farmland but also enable um in, industrial efficiency and that growth imperative continues strong for decades I mean, th this is one of the reasons why they turned to private financing in the 70s, because at, at least at the beginning of the 70s, before the energy crisis, there's a sense in both private utilities and cooperatives that energy demands are just going to continue to grow indefinitely, that the public good has been served by producing by by like just a rampant um, or just a, a an intensive ramping up of energy production, and they don't see that ending. 
Abby, you mentioned you, you mentioned the um, the relationship between uh, rural electrification and agricultural development in the United States in the context of the 1930s, uh, environmental crisis, the Dust Bowl, economic crisis, social crisis, political crisis. Um, it's interesting in my mind to compare the different uh, kind of path that these other cooperatives, the agricultural cooperatives took, right? These are often based in the South and Midwest also, but more often in the control of the state itself. So tell us about these um, electric cooperatives and their relationship to um, other levels of governments. We've talked about the federal government, obviously having a central role in incentivizing, underwriting loans, managing, developing best practices. Um, what, 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 how can you characterize the relationship of these cooperatives to the states or to uh, county or municipal governments? That's a great question. It's, it depends on the state. There are there were a lot of debates over whether states should regulate cooperatives since they were a federal program. There were debates over whether they should pay taxes or not. And there, there was also a lot of organizing within the cooperative community of multi-level cooperative organizations. So almost every state has a statewide cooperative association that it provides co-ops with a lot of different things. You know, it can it can help them with wholesale ordering. Um, it can provide political support. I mean, in in the way that any business association, you know, can can provide sort of, you know, gen general management help um, for smaller organizations. These statewide's are sort of a business association level for the co-ops, and then there are also a couple of these at the federal level as well. Um, one which actually has gotten some pretty bad press in environmental circles for lobbying against things like the Clean Air Act and um, a lot of environmental legislation. Um, and then this this um, cooperative finance corporation that I've kind of alluded to, which began in the 1970s to provide financial support for co-ops. I would say their relationship to states is contentious. I think because it's ultimately a federal program, it it has been um, a relationship of friction because, well, I don't know. I guess I would say it it, de it depends on the state and it's and it's variable. So these associations, um, as you say, are at the scale of the state, but yet don't report to the governor, for example, in, in most examples. Um, I think of these as primarily in the South and Midwest, but tell us um, like how widely dispersed were these cooperatives? Um, uh, you know, are, are there regional differences about them that would be significant? The most obvious regional difference is where they get their power from. So if you look at a map of, of electric co-ops in the US, they actually cover about 75% of the land area of the, of the continental US in terms of what their service area is. And, and I should say in terms of state regulation that one thing the states did in many cases was give co-ops a, uh, a guaranteed service area, a protected service area. So anyone who moves into the service area has to become a member of the cooperative if they want electricity. But beyond that, it's really interesting to look at, you know, what cooperatives primarily get their power from the TVA, um, what cooperatives primarily buy coal-fired power from private utilities. Um, there's a second level of cooperative called the Generation and Transmission Cooperative, which is a, a cooperative made up of cooperatives 
um, these distribution cooperatives that the REA funded um, that that arose because co-ops were having trouble negotiating with private power companies for power that the REA felt was cheap enough to encourage development. And so the REA gave cooperatives, gave in, in some areas permission to join together and build generation facilities. And so there are a number of co-ops across the country that um, collectively with other co-ops manage their own major electricity generation plants. You mentioned the TVA, Tennessee Valley Authority, um, some uh, probably a you know a, a project that will be familiar to many of our listeners. Um, uh, tell us what what is the relationship between the emergence of these cooperatives and the project of the TVA? What, to what extent are they in, in, implicated in one another? To what extent are they really quite different? The TVA was earlier, about two years earlier, and it was public. So in some sense, the TVA was the boogeyman that made it harder for rural electrification, for national rural electrification to become um, a public program. That said, they're not, they're not that separate. Um, people worked in and out of both programs and a lot of the electric cooperatives that were developed by the REA um, bought power from TVA. While the TVA has, you know, been, you know, often, if not always, often lionized in, uh, you know, design history as this kind of ambitious, you know, federally kind of, um, you know, kind of federally funded kind of public project at a national scale. It also, of course, has had its detractors and its critics. Um, in part, you know, I think um, the environmental legacy of the TVA has itself been a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, of course, we can talk about, you know, damming, um, you know, rivers and the implications for the natural environment from that process. We also can talk about the fact that the TVA is uh, authorized to um, produce energy through other means also, not only also sharing their waste across the region. We've seen stories recently where they've been uh, taking, you know, their kind of um, fly ash and other waste products, you know, throughout the region to dump sites. And so in that sense, I'm interested to what extent you can describe the TVA as itself a kind of... Um, failed project or a, a cautionary tale? My sense of it is that it it encountered similar problems to the REA of what, what was meant by TVA democracy, because a lot of the TVA rhetoric is about that too, right? It's about, it's about bringing power to the people and, um, and, you know, sort of lifting communities up to chart their own development. But the, but then a lot of the detractors at the TVA have come back and said, well, it was really micromanaged. It was very much top down. It wasn't this bastion of, of regional democracy that it wanted to be or claimed it was. Not that it, it didn't produce the infrastructure for that potential, but it didn't do the work to, to realize it in the way that it's propaganda necessarily claimed it did. The other thing I would say about the TVA related to the REA is that the REA really didn't have the visual appeal of the TVA. I mean, as you say, the TVA was, you know, we remember it and we, we still study it as, as this, as a project of um, architectural and, and visual distinction, right? It's, it's, it's sort of, um, I don't know, it, it has its own visual language that itself is inspiring. And the REA in part because it was it was so small and so um, 
depending on how you want to define this grassroots, the canonical images of the REA are, um, you know, a lineman up an electricity pole with a farmhouse in the background. The, you know, the major offices for these cooperatives, I, I think they have a visual language. And I, I feel like if you're driving across the U.S., you, you see, if you see, like, I can see a building and say, I think that's an electric co-op, but it's not spectacular in the way that the TVA was. Well, I mean, not every, not every region, not every cooperative has, you know, something like the Tennessee river to, to, to navigate. Right. And so there's a kind of civil engineering logic and scale. I'm, I'm interested in what you're kind of pointing us toward, which is a kind of, I'm overstating it as a kind of contradiction. Correct me if I'm getting that wrong, a kind of tension or a kind of dialectic, let's say between um, engineering culture, let's say, you know, kind of, we have professional expertise, we have engineering knowledge, we know how to do these things, a certain logic, and that's not something that is necessarily uh, going to, you know, that kind of knowledge is not going to come up bottom up from a grassroots conversation. At the same moment, there are these institutions are, you know, putatively meant to be democratic. And I'm interested in your, in your work more broadly, you know, looking at the history of energy, uh, the history of infrastructure. Is there something to infrastructure studies, which is inherently that way? I mean, obviously, you know, the, for many of us, you know, I think the first slide I was shown in architecture school was the the sins of our grandfathers. It was it was, it was the modernist, you know, top down planners and how we got it all wrong. And I, I feel like as though we've we've internalized those critiques. And at the same moment, is it, in your mind, is there still a kind of contradiction, or is that too strong a reading between, you know, infrastructure and the idea of building systems that are connected on the one hand, and the idea of um, democratic decision making? It totally depends on your definition of infrastructure. I teach a class, as you know, at the GSD called um, Experimental Infrastructures, which kind of starts with this question and it, and it asks people to engage in what I call infrastructural thinking um, and then to and to imagine what alternative infrastructures are possible to to this this sort of top down modernist infrastructural ideal. Infrastructure, as I talk about it in the in the class, is largely just I see it as networks that allow for human action at a different scale. My sense of what infrastructure is, is, is sort of history being written by the winners, right? It's the, it's the ability to reshape the landscape according to a social desire or a vision of the future. It is literally taking the power to reorganize things and people according to different methods of, of interaction and movement and exchange. And so there's nothing inherent in that that is a modernist project. I think it it was harnessed that way um, to great effect. But you can think about, well, what would it mean to create an infrastructure of care or an anti-colonial infrastructure, a feminist infrastructure, right? You you can if you think about like what are these alternative critical ways of of um, understanding the world that challenge that hegemonic modernist project. What would it look like if they were the basis for infrastructural design? And that's what we talk about in that class. And I don't, I don't think there's an, an obvious path forward for a lot of these things, because to some extent, you know, when you start to talk about large scale networked systems, you're pulled into the logics of, of these previous um, eras of the modern infrastructural ideal. But there, I, I think that it opens up possibilities and you know, and moments where we can start to understand the ways that design might might help create 
new social relationships. I mean, in that sense, I guess I'm asking my students in this class to to be their own hegemonic forces, right? I mean, I say it's counter hegemonic, but you know, if you're challenging at the level of hegemony, you're you're kind of taking on a, a role um, of hegemonic design yourself. We certainly many um, many of our listeners and many of our guests uh, on the future of the American city have been interested in the potential for a green New Deal. Um, and I wonder to what extent you know you, you've mentioned a little bit already. To, to what extent um, you know does does this history of rural cooperative electrification um, point us towards something that we could see as progressive going forward today? Or or to what to what extent do you think we need to um, imagine new new structures, new new infrastructures, new associations? I've seen it be an inspiration within the Green New Deal community, but I also think it's a cautionary tale. So Kate Aronoff a few years ago started tweeting about electric cooperatives, and I was really excited because at the time no one was talking about them. And I was like, oh, my research actually is is um, achieving some sort of public presence. I mean, not not my research, but the topic of my research. And um, and like people do actually care about these things where I, I thought they were kind of esoteric um, parts of history. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny because you can see in, in the progression of um, of Kate Aronoff's writing, you know, this moment of of utter excitement when she discovers them and she's tweeting things like, like, I'm so obsessed with these farmers. Um, and then the ultimate article she wrote about them was, well, they're not very democratic and maybe we should rethink um, what for, what we're asking for when when we're looking for democratic forms of control over energy. And I guess I've seen electric co-op communities do really awesome projects. But I also wonder on the lines of, of your questions about, um, you know, what are, what are our um, inheritances from high modernism? I wonder about energy as it, in energy in itself um, as a category for asking about opportunities for democracy. There's a really, fascinating and growing um, literature in the history of science on energy as a category of human thought and action. And what I take from this literature is that the way that we talk about energy itself is pretty recent historically. And the, and so it asks, it invites me to be critical of the way that we categorize certain things together. Like, why do we talk about electricity and, and oil and um, solar and you know all of these energy resources as 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 one thing that we are pretty sure we know what it is. And I guess I would ask, what are the social narratives we're bringing into that categorization, and how does that how does that limit our ability to see what these systems can do socially? Yeah, it's it's fascinating to you know think about. Um... As you say, the, the potentials of an infrastructure for care or infrastructure of empathy. Um, I'm also I'm interested in the the extent to which um, you know the kind of recent interest in um, decolonizing infrastructure you know raises questions of one's ability to opt out or opt in. Right. So one of the I think central you know kind of aspects of the kind of major infrastructures of the 20th century, um, energy included, was the sense that they were um, de facto obligatory, 
that is, you know, they were they were for everyone. Uh, there, there was no there was no town hall meeting. There was no referendum that you will be electrified in the same way that now we can't really exist without the internet, for example. And so, um, you know, the emergence of this capacity immediately renders you know portions of the map um, poverty stricken by definition, right? So, uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, I, I, I'm interested in, in the role of the cooperative as a kind of intermediary that can be quite specific and local. And I'm also interested in the potential for their, what I hear in your description of them is their potential for their social agency and engagement, not to mention even their political agency, to go well beyond just the delivery of a utility, right? I mean, a part, part of what you're suggesting, I think a part of what your book gets at is the power of bringing people together, uh, you know, letting them become informed about where their power comes from, to embody it, spatialize it, understand that they are in fact connected in a way with this group of people. Uh, there are a great, I think, social and uh, political potentials uh, from that. Um, uh, have you seen examples in the cooperatives and the people that you're speaking to who are members of cooperatives um, beyond simply the delivery of, of energy? A ton of examples. Maybe the first one I'll mention is that a lot of the members of cooperatives in Kentucky, in Eastern Kentucky, have um, have joined the, um, the community organization, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth in recent years and they are well connected to um to climate justice broader climate justice fights um they have done a, a number of interesting community programs starting from very basic things like on bill financing for um for like energy efficiency retrofits so that people who don't have the the um who don't have a lot of money to to put into energy investments in their homes can um, can start to both weatherize their homes and also save money. So basic things like that to using these co-ops as a way to launch broader conversations about racial justice, about, I don't know, a lot of the topics that we might roll into the Green New Deal around things like like sufficiency versus growth. So that's that's KFTC on the one hand. On the other, there are a number of co-ops that have used their 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 own financing to invest in local development projects. And you know, I just mentioned degrowth, so saying that in one breath and then talking about local economic development in the other is a bit of a contradiction. But I think it's really interesting to to look at organizations that are capable of of moving capital and, and keeping capital local and and funding. Um, more local ideas of development. So, you know, this has been, this has funded everything from like business incubator programs to the development of community solar farms, um, even to small industries. Of course, we need at some point to talk about the implication of um, rural electrification and the source of energy. Um, you mentioned, you know, these were literally across the country, uh, hundreds and hundreds of them, uh, most still operating. Um, where did they source their energy from? Many or as much as half of them were were not producing the energy directly. That is, they were kind of in between consumers on the one hand uh, and producers on the other. Mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming there was a regional menu, but this menu must have included coal, uh, oil, a range of other fuels. Yeah, absolutely. They were initially designed to just be distribution cooperatives. So the idea in the 1930s was that they these community organizations would build their own lines 
and negotiate for wholesale power from private utilities, the same private utilities that had hemmed and hawed about, about extending power to them in previous decades. Sometimes that worked out, sometimes it didn't. And that's, that's when co-ops were um, given permission to take out more loans to build their own generating facilities. Unfortunately, a lot of the co-op network is, is powered by coal still. Some of them have been pioneers of new renewable energy technologies. As I mentioned earlier, it, it's really regional. So in the Pacific Northwest and around the TVA, as you might expect, a lot of them, uh, a lot of their generation comes from hydropower. But they're not, I wouldn't say that there, there's anything inherent to the cooperative model that has lent itself to one power source. It's, it's been, it's been a much more regional patchwork of what they can negotiate, um, what they can negotiate for with private companies and, um, what makes sense for them to generate themselves. And then, um, in more recent years, have they had committed, uh, memberships that have pushed for renewable energy? And, and in that case, some of them have had, have found that, um, that their co-ops have have been venues where they can experiment with new energy technology. I want to I want to um, drill down on this again to to my to my mind. What's seemingly a bit of a contradiction on the one hand, the the political potential and or the social potential, uh, you know, progressive potential of these cooperatives emerging in a way in a in a contestation between advocates of you know large you know, public programs or a kind of public option on the one hand versus the industry which is already entrenched in producing and and is therefore you know in a way these cooperatives emerge from what i understand in 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 the kind of margins in a way right in in the space between where the market will thrive um and at the same moment they're promise their putative you know potential has to do as you say with this kind of the potential for local governance they have kind of democratic or collective decision making a not for profit um basis for their decision making um and, and at the same moment we see you know today of course this is still a, a relative minority of the overall population in the United States uh, still in you know relatively rural areas compared to the majority of where Americans live and work and so in that context um what are the mechanisms for cooperative members to get engaged in their local cooperatives? What are the mechanisms by which they they can help to uh, persuade the leadership of the cooperatives uh, to, you know, for example, change you know energy sources and not simply pursue the cheapest available uh, energy source, irrespective of the carbon implications? So nominally, there's an annual meeting, and every member is invited to attend. And they vote on on cooperative business policy at this meeting, and cooperatives cooperative members, again nominally, have the ability to raise any issue they want. Um, these meetings are where a board of directors is elected, and anyone can run. Again, in theory, um, in practice, this isn't how co-ops have usually run. Um, Few people attend meetings. For many of them, boards of directors have continued to serve, you know, uncontested for decades. When they retire, they appoint their friends. And they've turned their annual meetings into, into sort of a free dinner and a packaged presentation about how great the co-op's doing. But again, like in most co-ops, 
in a for a good co-op, maybe a couple hundred members will attend one of these meetings. And again, I haven't done a survey of all 900 co-ops across the U.S., so there may be some that are very participatory that I haven't come across. But my sense is that that on paper, there are these democratic mechanisms that just aren't exercised by the membership. So for co-ops who have had moments where members have have sort of woken up and said, I really want to enact change in my co-op, the way that this has happened you know, it, it will sound familiar to anyone who's done democratic organizing at a local level. You know, they often the story goes, you know, they realize that they're part of this cooperative. They try to talk to the co-op leadership. They get kind of pushback and, and skepticism about, you know, why is this member asking for all of these details about co-op operations? And then they do a bunch of grassroots organizing. They talk to their neighbors. They send out emails, run challenger candidates for the board of directors and you know, sometimes in, in some co-ops that has been straightforward and in some they've had to confront all of these bureaucratic challenges of the co-op board of directors, you know, not being willing to provide membership lists or having sort of dr draconian requirements for getting a name on the ballot, discounting signatures on a uh, on a petition. Right. It's all of these bureaucratic things. But in the cases where it's worked, it's it's just been, you know, as simple as knocking on doors and getting the word out and convincing people to vote. So in that context, there are a number of cases where co-op members have been able to change the agenda of their co-ops. One of the conversations we've had um, on the Future of the American City has been the extent to which, um, you know, the, the transition to a renewable, you know, or kind of post-carbon decarbonized, you know, energy economy in the United States depends upon the electrification of all things essentially and to what extent that's possible through growth or to what extent um we you know in, in order to achieve uh that one has to pause um stop growth degrow and in that debate you know not inviting you to take a side but obviously knowing that your research c covers uh, that debate i wonder if you have thoughts about the the model of the cooperative in relationship to that debate that we seem to be having today there's a world in which a cooperative business model would fit really well with degrowth because in theory, the, the conceit of these co-ops was that they would take, they would initially take out federal loans and as their community developed, they would pay the loans back and ultimately they would own their whole business. And of course that didn't, it didn't quite happen that way because they were, so caught up in this grow and build mentality that, you know, original loans led to bigger loans, led to bigger loans. And, and, and the, the whole game became, how do we grow our system? Because that's what private utilities were doing. That's what rural development demanded. Um, the more electricity was available, the more they would encourage industry to, to um, come to their area, the more um, they would, the more they would grow their community. But if, if you put that future aside, and you think about the way that people talked about rural electrification and in, in early propaganda in the 1930s, a lot of it was was about saving rural America from change. You know, these reformers in the federal government were they were concerned about rural to urban migration. Um, they were concerned that people wouldn't want to inherit their family farms, and they had this very romantic idea of of the small scale family farm supporting this agrarian America that was that was sort of deeply um, a deep part of American culture. 
So all of the rhetoric around rural electrification was about the, it was about preservation and it, it was about saving the family farm. And, and even a lot of the language around how electric farming would relieve drudgery wasn't about efficiency, but about freeing farmers from labor. You know, so they, they paint these pictures of the, the farmer citizen who farms in the morning and talks politics in the afternoon. And so if you think about that world, like what infrastructure would have been required to build that future, that's totally compatible with degrowth. That's about sufficiency and, and not about excess. It's about intensifying quality of life and maintaining community stability as opposed to, to connecting to a national economy or, or to um, increasing the like, industrial output. So then it just gets you to a question of to what extent do co-ops engage with the broader, um, the broader global economy? How much do they have to and, and, do, and can, are there conditions in which they could step back? Yeah, I want to ask you about that. I want to ask about the extent to which the shift toward uh, renewable energy sources, uh, wind, solar, geothermal, uh, wave energy, etc. To what extent those more you know distributed systems, um, you know, moving away from point source production, um, to what extent does that lend itself toward a cooperative mindset in, in your in your thinking? I think a lot of people want to make that connection, and there's there's this there's an aura around renewable energy that it could be smaller scale it could be more democratic and it could probably the same way that that I was just talking about well what would the infrastructure have what infrastructure would have been required to create this world in which farmers could farm in the morning and talk politics in the afternoon if that's our goal we can ask questions about how can we engage renewable energy to create futures like that? But I worry that the way that renewable energy industries are developing, that it's more along the lines of what is going to enable us to continue to consume unlimited energy cost-free. You know, I'm really inspired by the work of people like Theo Rio Francos, um, who looks at the, um, the resource frontiers of of renewable energy development. And, um, you know, for example, she's interested in, um, in lithium mining, right. And, and sort of what are the um, new landscapes of extraction that are being created to support what we might call here a just transition. So to some extent, I worry about renewable energy pushing its externalities abroad in, you know, in the way that it's, that it's separating territory of, um, of sort of small-scale democratic energy from the environmental impacts of these supposedly green commodity chains. Not even just, you know, uh, terrestrial uh, extraction, but even, in fact, uh, extraterrestrial uh, extraction, as increasingly we see propositions about mining off the earth to supply all the all the minerals required for this um, sort, of, sort of growth toward renewables. Right, absolutely. So, what's the end point? Um, I mean, and so, so I mentioned this cooperative in um, in Vermont, Washington Electric. One thing they've done when they were trying to divest from nuclear, they built a uh, landfill gas recovery plant, and so they replaced all of their nuclear power with um, with this. You can call it renewable, potentially. It's you know, it's it's a strange thing to call renewable because it it sounds dirty, but 
it's taking a greenhouse gas out of the atmosphere, right? It's it, and it's and it's reusing a waste product that would exist anyway. And they they talk about that project with with those caveats, right? But I see that as an interesting example of of what co-ops can do that is um I don't know, more along the lines of degrowth. Another cooperative that I've studied in Colorado, um, Holy Cross Energy, they've done a similar project with um, an abandoned mine um, methane gas recovery. And I feel like co-ops can do these projects, these, these smaller scale, like very regionally specific projects because of their institutional structure in a way that in some ways it's challenging the, the flashier the global commodity supply chain of something like solar, right? And and so maybe that's one way we can try to bring co-ops into this conversation to ask how does something how does a, an organization that's that local what capacity do they have to look at the resources that exist where they are and keep their ecological footprint regional as opposed to separating out you know clean generation from um it's it's potentially less savory context of production and the endless expectation of growth abby spinnick thank you so very much for joining us thank you charles you've been listening to future of the american city curated by the office for urbanization at the harvard graduate school of design This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.